I tell you what, let's pray before we jump in, please. Father, thankful for the book of Deuteronomy, thankful uh, that you give us uh, the law to know you, to understand more about you, uh, to grant us grace, and uh, to, to give us a, a glimpse into yourself and your holy character in relation to people. And help us, Father, to comprehend today, um, looking, Father, for you to teach our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you would, open up to Deuteronomy 9. I want to show you something real quick so that you understand what we're what we're trying to get to. We've got, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, five more Sunday school classes before we're done for the summer. And um just want to refresh everybody real quick that Deuteronomy is set up in a structure known as a suzerain vassal treaty. In uh verses or sorry, chapters one through four, we saw the introduction to that art. Is there any more coffee? Could I have some? Thank you, brother. That is a servant of God right there. Um, then we had a historical prologue that took place within that gap from chapter 1, verse 5 to 440. You don't have to write all this down. This is stuff actually that you already have. Um, in fact, let me see here. Leland, do you care to pass this out to everybody? This is just for notes for today if we get into chapter 10. Um there was a historical prologue. In other words, going back over where they've been, recounting things of the first generation, how God has delivered them, and especially some of the conquests that they had with uh, the kings, uh, how God had delivered them faithfully through that time. And then from chapter 5 unto 1132 is with the section that we're in now dealing with general stipulations. General stipulations that have been set down uh, in this. And, and thank you. And a lot of it, a lot of what we have seen is Moses bringing up the fact that Yahweh is the only person worth worshiping. There is no one else that is worth worshiping. In doing that, there's been two approaches that Moses has taken to do this. He will communicate how to get the truth into people's minds and hearts, and then he will turn around and he will explain to them a warning of past failures. How had that generation failed Yahweh in the past so that they would learn from their mistakes and correct that? We are going to, in the next five weeks, try to get to the end of 1132 so that we finish the general stipulations. And the reason is, is because chapter 12, verse 1, we pick up with that in, in September, we're going to start specific stipulations is what they are. So it's going to be a further expounding upon the expectations of Yahweh. Now remember this, the law is not what is the checklist that a Jew must live up to in order to be saved. That is not what is going on here. What is the primary purpose of the law, do we know, for Israel? Primary purpose of the law for Israel, what is it, do we know? Thank you, sir. Well, not just guidance. What's that? He's going to reveal more of himself, yes, but not just that. We throw this word around a lot, Mary. It is obedience, but obedience is coupled with an idea. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The law, the keeping of the law for Israel is about fellowship. It's about intimacy. It is about going beyond just, I set you free from Egypt. It's about drawing a people unto himself and them living in such a way that is so drastically different from how Satan has woven the world system at that time 
that their good works, their culture, their life, their love, their respect, all of these things are going to radiate this idea of who God is in comparison to the other little g gods, the gods that were created. Now let's remember this. This is important. Little g gods are demons, okay? They all were previously angels that have fallen in some capacity and in doing so are completely against Yahweh. And they have, and the reason why I say in some capacity, have they fallen? Yes. But God still holds them accountable for how they are governing over the nations that have been entrusted to them in this time. And this is what makes Israel so interesting. It's the fact that the entire world has been divided up in order for demons to be holding responsibility with them. And out of all of that, Yahweh chose Israel, the smallest and the most insignificant, in order for him to shepherd over himself. So when we talk about things like idol worship and other kings and other nations and their practices, and we talk about the idea of coming in and destroying and killing everything, and what it, I mean, all of that sounds real drastic and bombastic and all of that. What are we trying to get at that? We actually see that it is a convincing argument that Yahweh is constantly making that he alone is God, that he alone is the creator, and that everything else is inferior to him. The entire Bible is a conversation that is trying to convince us that he's right. That's really what it boils down to. The Bible, page after page after page, preaches to you and I over and over, you can trust me always, every time. So that is the message that he's trying to get together in the short form with Israel. The last time what we left off at was a stiff-necked people, hard-headed. What else would we say for that, do you know? Wow. See, I don't even understand this whole argument. I mean, we're from Kentucky. It's either Kentucky or Louisville, and the Louisville people, we know we're going to hell. So it's just what it is. I'm just kidding. I shouldn't joke about that. Um, But they probably are. Um, You either bleed blue or you die. (laughs) That's the way it goes where I'm from. So you guys have got to help educate me on the whole Norwegian. Is it Scandinavian as well? What else around here? Well, no, I'm talking about talking as far as about the ancestral and heritage makeup of the state of Wisconsin. Germans? Okay, that's pretty much it. Some English? You're probably the only English here, maybe. There you go. We'll have to talk more so you can tell me. That way I can laugh at your jokes. I just laugh at you, not with you now, and I don't want to do that anymore. So that's usually just Chuck. So moving on. Uh, So notice, um, chapter 9. Verse 22, remember we dealt with this. Again, at Taberah and at Masa and at Kibroth Hat Tavah, you provoke the Lord to wrath. And if you remember, each one of those situations that we looked at, Moses is displaying for them a track record of their stiff-neckedness, their hard-heartedness. And also, if you notice, the, 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 the interesting thing that threads all of those situations together is the result is always complaining and grumbling. It is always griping. It is always manifested in our words that end up being slanderous of the truth of God and His love or His provision or His promises or whatever it may be. It's always uh, bringing itself out. And that really has a lot to preach to us in this day and age. Anybody ever just been around somebody complains all the time? Don't nudge your spouse. 
But you don't want to hang out with those people for very long, do you? It's so negative. It's just a killer. And what it doesn't do is it doesn't edify the body and build the body up. Notice in the next part, verse 23. When Yahweh sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and possess the land which I have given you. Then you rebelled against the command of Yahweh your Elohim. You neither believed him nor listened to his voice. Now, something important here. Kadesh Barnea, if you want to write it in, we've already covered it earlier in this class. Numbers 13 and 14 is what this is, this event. And if you remember, this is the event of sending the ten spies over to the land in order to bring back evidence that the place that Yahweh was leading them was exactly as he said it had been. Now, stop for a second. Sometimes we look at the situation and we think, oh, well, yeah, why would they not want to go to the promised land? Because there's all these grapes and pomegranates and figs, and it's a land, right? We always hear it, a land flowing with milk and honey, right? That's the idea. That is just a surface level incentive to provoke the heart to be in that land. What really should have motivated them to get in the land was one thing. The Lord said it's yours. Everybody see that difference? Sadly, we often need incentive in order to obey. Why? Is not God's word enough? I mean, how many of you have dealt with your kids and you tell them to do something, they go, why? And you say, because you all know it, don't you? And what are you saying in effect? Because my word is enough reason for you to conduct your situation like that. Is God not the ultimate parent or what? It's because of his word. In fact, look at some of the language in this verse. 23, go up and possess the land which I've given to you. Then you rebelled against the command, but who has a footnote? Who has a footnote next to the word command? If you've got an NASB, you might have it. Literally, what does it say? Mouth. You rebelled against the mouth of the Lord. In other words, when he spoke truth to you, you said, nah, whatever. I don't believe him. He's crazy. The old man's flipped his lid, right? We say that. Notice here, that's not the case. You rebelled against his word. How about this? Uh, the word of Yahweh, your Elohim, you neither believed. Okay, stop. So notice it's an unbelief problem. Everybody see that? And look how we move into this. You neither believed him nor listened to his what? Does everybody see there's an emphasis on his word and believing that it's true? Does everybody see that? When we don't believe his word, when we don't follow through with what has God commanded me, you find that there may be a temporary section of scratching the itch of sin that we desperately want. But there is always a price to pay in relationship to it. And there is always, always, always a disconnection in our fellowship with God. Always. We wonder sometimes why he may feel distant from us. Well, how come I feel like God's not listening to me right now? Well, number one, it's a feeling that needs to be in check in our F train, right? We all get that. But in being in check in our F train, we have to come back to the fact, what has God said? That's what I'm saying. The F train is applicable to everything we will ever teach in church. God's word is preeminent and predominant over everything. Him saying it is enough. I don't need the fact that these grapes are as big as bowling balls for me to walk into this promised land. I need the fact that God told me I can go and I can take it and he will fight for me. Does everybody remember that part? He's the warrior God. 
He will fight for me. I don't have to fight. I just have to trust him. I just have to walk along, do what he says, period. Notice it's trusting and obeying, just like we sang. Same thing. Verse 24. You have been rebellious against Yahweh from the day I knew you. And there's some some translation variations here that say that it could also be understood as from the day that he knew you. Uh, could be the idea. From the day he called you, you've been rebellious. And of course, we would look all the way back to Abraham fleeing to Egypt when God never told him to go there, told him to be in the land because that was the land he was going to inherit. Um, so there's there's a translation variation, not anything important, but you need to know it at least. Verse 25, so I fell down before Yahweh the 40 days and nights, which I did because Yahweh had said he would destroy you. In other words, I prostrated myself before him and I begged him not to kill you. That's how Moses responded to their sinful situation. He served as an intercessor. I prayed to Yahweh and said, oh, now watch this. Look what happens. Oh, what? Well, watch. How is it worded? Not just Lord God. Look beyond it. Capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and then what? What's it say? Does anybody remember what this is? All caps, G-O-D. All caps. Everybody see it? Is it up there like that? Yeah, it is. Look at it right here. Notice up there. So I fell down before the Lord, all caps L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, because the Lord, Yahweh, I prayed to the Lord, Yahweh, and said, oh, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, all caps G-O-D. Does anybody remember why people have translated it that way in English? What's it communicating? Anybody remember? Oh, Adonai, Yahweh. Notice it's not just Yahweh. When you deal with capital G, lowercase O-D, you are dealing with the word Elohim. And Elohim is a generic term that can be used to describe any god. Not just the god of the Bible, but all the false gods that have been made as well, all the false gods that actually have demons behind them. When you deal with all caps, L-O-R-D, you are dealing with his personal name, his fellowship name, being Yahweh is the idea. It's the, it's the name that he gives out at the beginning of Genesis 2 when he talks about his relationship of, of revealing himself to Adam and the type of intimacy that he wants to have. Yahweh is that intimate personal name. But when you deal with capital L, lowercase o-r-d, you are dealing with Adonai. And Adonai would be what we would call Lord in the New Testament, being master. So the idea of capital L, lowercase o-r-d, is master. Uh, If you read at the very beginning of your Bibles, the translator's notes before you, like right after the table of contents or something like that, you get into the entire idea of Master, Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, Adonai, all those things. When you do that, you have the capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and it's Adonai, all caps G-O-D becomes Yahweh. So the address, whenever Moses comes and he lays himself flat before Yahweh, he addresses him as Master, but also uses his personal name. Because it establishes, it, it gives the idea of this is a personal relationship that he has with the creator of all things you are master but you are also personal it is a real humbling of himself and what you find by and large is it's the prophets who largely use this it's all throughout the book of ezekiel 
Adonai Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh, over and over and over again. It's really important to know that because it will completely change and affect the way that you see, read, and receive the Old Testament. You actually see the emotion or the mindsets behind what they're thinking and how they address God. Notice it says, oh, I prayed to Yahweh and said, oh, Adonai Yahweh, do not destroy your people, even your, what? Inheritance. Okay, stop. That's a loaded word. What have we been talking about inheritance, inheritance, inheritance lately? What is it in Deuteronomy that's considered the inheritance? The land. The land is Israel's inheritance. Does everybody know that God gets an inheritance? God also has an inheritance in waiting. He also has something that will be specially granted to him as his own possession. When we talk about inheriting something, we're talking about possessing something. We're talking about value. We're talking about worth. We're talking about riches and pleasure and glory and all those things. Well, Israel is Adonai Yahweh's inheritance. Notice, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What is Moses doing here in appealing this way to Yahweh? Do we know? What's he doing in talking to the Lord this way? What's that? Well, he gives him glory for it. What's that? Not yet. Not yet. You're close. You're close. What is he ascribing to God there? They're your inheritance, right? So you have a special connection to them, correct? But what does he say after that? Whom you have redeemed. Stop. The whole picture of redemption is painted through the Exodus. For God to destroy the people of Israel, and if that took place in history, there wouldn't be any reason why we couldn't connect that to the theological truth and say, well, I can lose my salvation then. God can just get tired of me and go, but notice the keeping of myself is not based on how sinful or not sinful. Has anybody in the room ever been stiff-necked or rebellious at any time towards the Lord? Okay, so prideful, yes, because you're saying no. We know that, right? Yeah, liars, exactly, yeah. I've never been stiff-necked, but I'm the greatest liar ever. Exactly. The redemption is necessary for every one of us. It's not any different for us to be going off track if we want to communicate these theological truths from New Testament, Old Testament, Israel, church, the whole idea. That thematically is still the same. But notice that God's faithfulness is sitting here in the boundary. You redeemed them through your greatness. Did God deliver them greatly? Oh man, it was a catastrophic event for Egypt. Good grief, it took them years to recover. In fact, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, some of you may know this better, I think that if you were to start in Genesis and you were to read all the way through, you would find that after the waters close in, Exodus 14, and wipe out Pharaoh, from Exodus 15 until about the middle of Solomon's reign, you don't hear from Egypt again. You hear of them referred to, but it's usually, we heard what your God did to Egypt. That's what they hear. We heard how your God spanked them silly. You know, that. in fact, isn't that uh, Rahab's response, the prostitute in Jericho? We heard what your God did. It was 40 years ago, and we're still scared to death, right? So, I mean, think about it. That's a pretty large lesson. Egypt's prominence, gone. In fact, it's never been the same. It has never been the same since, and it's not even today. Right now, they're, they're barely a player 
and as far as world nations and having control of everything. It's very interesting how the Lord dealt decisively with them. So notice, by your greatness, whom you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. This is what's known as an anthropomorphism. It's the idea of ascribing human terms so that we can understand what God is doing. Has ever, anybody ever used a mighty hand on anybody? About using one, want to use a mighty hand on that woman who took my parking space yesterday. But you, you think about what that is. Getting things accomplished, powerfully moving in, watching things change, decimating something is the idea moving in here. God, you were great in what you did. Look at verse 27. Notice the first word. Remember. Did God forget? No, but what's the idea here when he brings up remember? Remember your servants. What's he doing here? Where does he go with it? Bobby, this is your answer. The covenant, yes. Notice. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Stop, God. Remember, you made a promise. And as far as I remember, you don't ever break your word. A promise is a promise. I'm listening to some Randy Travis song in the car right now called Broken Promises or something. I'm still trying to figure out where this song is going. Uh, Very odd. It's very weird. Hey, two CD set for nine bucks. I love Randy Travis. It's good. But anyway, moving on. Is country music like that anymore? No. So praise the Lord. Let's listen to music that's actually country if we're going to. Okay? I don't know what in the world Florida Georgia line is, but good grief. It's like spring break gone bad. Um Forgive me. That's a whole nother sermon. Uh, Not really. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He takes them back to the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. Now remember, God, you have a promise to fulfill, and you promised it would be done. And you put Abraham asleep, and you even revealed to him about this Exodus event in Egypt, and you alone passed through the pieces. You alone shook the hand. You alone said, I'm putting my seal on this to see it through to the end. Despite rebellion, despite sin, he says here, uh, don't, do not look at the stubbornness of this people or at their wickedness or their sin. Why? Why would Moses in prayer appeal to the unconditional covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and God keeping his word and then turn around immediately and say, do not look at the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin? Why? Why would he do that? What if I said to you, everybody look over here. Everybody look over here. Everybody look, don't look over there. Don't look over there. Look over here. Look over here. What am I trying to do? I'm trying to focus your attention on something else. I'm trying to focus your attention on incentive, reason. Notice that he's pleading with God in prayer. God, remember your word. Stay faithful to your word. But don't look at their stubbornness. Don't look at their wickedness. Don't look at their sin. Why? Because if that's all that God is focused on, there's no reason he should save them at all. If I focused on that, gone. They've been so evil that if that's what you look at, you will come to the conclusion, no, not going to do it. Yeah, they're worth nothing. They're always stiff-necked. Didn't Stephen say this right before they killed him? You stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Which one of your fathers did not kill the prophets that were sent to him? I mean, think of that's a harsh point to bring across. But why would this? Here's the reason why. 
Because even Moses understands that appealing to God is to be appealed to him by his word, not our actions. And I tell you what, this theme right here would do us well, Old Testament wise, to realize about the nature of our eternal salvation, our eternal life. If we were to look at our wickedness and our stubbornness and our sin, you will conclude that you're not really saved. Why is that? Because sometimes even as Christians, we do some messed up stuff. Look at Corinth. If I read through Corinth apart from the promise of Jesus Christ, I'd be like, why is this even in this book? These people are horrible. And then I would recognize that that book's really talking about me. You see what I'm saying? You would conclude that you're not saved from that. But notice, that's not where we're to look. Lord, don't look there. Don't look at the reasons why you should go ahead and do away with them, exterminate them off the face of the earth, not keep your promises. Look to your promises. That's what's always faithful. That's what's always sure. That's what's always steadfast. If I'm accepted on any other grounds besides the blood of Jesus, I'm in trouble because there are no grounds. All other ground is? Exactly. See, we know it. We know it. How about this? Verse 27. Remember, uh, sorry, we did, we did that. Verse 28. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us, stop. Where's the land they brought it from? Egypt. So make sure you write that down there so you get it. Otherwise, the land, because you might just read land and think you're talking about the promised land. You don't want to make that assumptive mistake. Notice, otherwise, the land from which you brought us may say, because Yahweh was not what? Time out. Because Yahweh was not able. Watch what's going on here. Watch the argument. Otherwise, the land from which you brought us, Egypt, may say, Egypt has an opinion about Yahweh post-Exodus. Now watch this. If you wipe them out, look what it says. Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, stop. What is the word promise there? Look at your marginal note. What's it say? God said it. Spoken to. It's a promise. He actually verbalized. Egypt knew where Israel was going. It wasn't private knowledge. It was public knowledge. God was completely open about what he's doing with them and where they're going to be. And everything that took place, every shot that was fired off against all these false gods was building a case to move towards that direction and to get their demonic junk out of the way so that God would be supreme in Egypt's eyes as well as Israel's eyes. He is the deliverer. And so notice, Egypt who you overthrew, destroyed their king, got rid of the royal people, had the death of the firstborn come through, everybody suffering with boils and plagues, and it's dark and nobody can move, those types of things, locusts, frogs, all of that stuff. They're going to have an opinion about this. And they're going to say, you brought them out as you promised, but notice this, you hated them. He has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. In other words... The redemption that was characterized by the love of God for Israel will actually be slandered in public places as hatred because he would exterminate them in the wilderness. He's not able. Does everybody see how blasphemous that is? Now, how, how, is, how could a person as an Egyptian sit here and kind of look at around all the devastation they're having to recover from for years and years and years and say, well, God wasn't able. Does everybody see the pride of the heart there? Egypt's pride would overcome the facts of what had happened to them and say, well, yeah, God might have set them free from here, but he just couldn't tolerate it. must not have been much of a God there. Now, does God care about public opinion? That's a question you've got to ask yourself. Trick question. 
Does God care about public opinion? Defend it. How do you know? Chapter and verse. How do you know? Oh, he's God. He doesn't need our approval, does he? He doesn't need our public opinion. He's no respecter of persons, but we'd have to ask ourselves, what's the context of that passage, right? But how many times over and over in the prophets do we see that he is upset with Israel because you have profaned my name among the nations? Why does God care about that? It's all, it's all through in Ezekiel. What is it? Integrity. Why? Why would God want to be seen amongst the nations as having integrity? Because this is how God is wholly different from anything else that they're settling for much less in worshiping. He is a promise-keeping God. He is a perfectly providing God. He is able to sustain a people through a disciplined wilderness is the reason why. Now let's, just so we don't forget the idea behind what God is doing, turn back to Deuteronomy 4. And take a look. He tells us very clearly, you should have it marked, highlighted. You should probably even have some crayons next to it or something. Look at chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 5. You've got to remember, this is what God is seeking to accomplish in upholding His promises through Israel. His desire is much greater than Israel. It doesn't, it doesn't begin and end with the Jewish people. It goes on beyond that, and it demonstrates His heart for what He's trying to accomplish. So look at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at verse 5. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Yahweh my Elohim commanded me. Now stop. What are the statutes and judgments? It's the the law. Exactly. The law. And why is it that Moses has taught them the law? Because Yahweh wants to have what with Israel? Fellowship. He wants to have deep friendship, intimacy every day, them abiding the whole deal. Now notice, I've taught you these things. And look what he says here. Uh, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. Everybody see that? You're inheriting this land. It's going to be yours. So you are to do these statutes and commandments. Now watch the reason why. Verse 6. So keep and do them. Notice that. Guard them. The word keep means guard, watch is the idea. Keep them and do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. This is what sets you apart. This is what makes you noticeable. When the whole world is following Satan's schemes and going to hell in a handbasket, you are rising above and you are proclaiming the, the, the glory of a God that does not fail that prospers you, that provides for you. Guys, this isn't much different from what we see in our Christian lives. Why are we called as his workmanship for good works that he prepared for us to do? Why are we called be holy as I am holy? We sit there and think, good grief, there's no way I can do that. Exactly. It's because all of it is a dependency on God to be doing it through us. The holiness that is exhibited through my person is the holiness of Jesus Christ. It's not the holiness of Jeremy. Jeremy has holes. That's what he has. Only the Lord has holiness. Okay? Does that make sense? I'm Swiss cheese. He's cheddar cheese. Wisconsin. Okay, never mind. What's up, Leland? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I would say the entire expanse of the Bible is this convincing argument of either 
reasons why you should trust him, or it holds a standard of accountability for people's rejection of him. You see what I'm saying? It's a revealing of himself. So notice, this is to be your wisdom amongst the peoples, your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, now watch the response of the nations. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there who has a God? Everybody see that? They know where it comes from. There's obviously a deity in play here who has a God so near to it. In other words, personal. This brings you back to the idea of the name Yahweh. A God so near to it. Notice it says here, sorry, I lost my place. Uh, as, as Yahweh, our Elohim, whenever we call on him. Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? Everybody see that? Does everybody see that God's desire is for the nations? By Him using the smallest of the nations and working through them to reach these people. It's a much greater mission that God is on. He wants to use these people to demonstrate His goodness and watch it shine out of them so that they are calling out to everyone to come and know Yahweh the Creator. Does everybody see how that, that, what He's doing here? God's plan is much bigger than just the Old Testament's about the Jews, the New Testament's about the church. It's so much bigger than that. His heart is so much bigger than that. Sure, go for it. By and large, depending on the context, it usually means Gentiles. It means everyone who is not a Jew. So it would be, in our situation, what we're looking at here with the relationship of Israel coming into the land and the surrounding nations, we're pretty, we could pretty much label it, and this isn't uh, uh, pejorative in any way, but we would label it as pagans, is what it is. People who are living for their own selves, doing their own thing, worshiping these crazy less gods that they had to make out of rocks and wood and all this stuff. And this is speaking something totally different, a personal, intimate relationship with God, which is something that they're sorely missing. And we know this, if you were just to look at the whole situation with the prophets of Baal and Elijah, right? Those guys are sitting out there screaming, crying out, cutting themselves. I mean, doing all kinds of crazy, crazy things to try to get the attention of their God. What does Elijah do? Elijah simply, simply builds an altar, he kneels, and he prays. There's the personal relationship with God right there. He didn't have to cut himself or do anything crazy. He didn't have to jump through hoops in order for God to pay attention or to respond to him. He just simply had to call on his name. And that's exactly what this is. So notice, go back to uh, chapter 9. Let's finish up chapter 9. Verse 28, Otherwise the land from which you brought us may say, because Yahweh was not able to bring them into the land which he had promised them, and because he had hated them, he he has brought them out to slay them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people. Now watch this. Moses is doing something very interesting. They are your people, even your inheritance. Notice that idea is brought up again. Whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. There's an anthropomorphism again. Does everybody see your, 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 your? The yours, the yours. You made promises. You acted on their behalf. Now why is that important? Turn back to verse 12 in this chapter. This is when Moses was up on the mountain at the end of the first 40 days and 40 nights. God gave him the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Verse 12, Then Yahweh said to me, Arise, go down from here quickly. For your people, notice Yahweh's talking to Moses, for your people 
whom you brought out of Egypt have acted corruptly. Isn't that just like a parent? You will never guess what your son did today. You always know something not good's coming on. It's never, oh man, he, you know, scored scored an amazing score on this math test. It's, hey, you'll never guess what your son did. He got an A today. You're like, all right, that's my son, right? That never happens. It's always like he took cat poop and smeared it in the screen door. That's what he did. Because that's like the worst horrible thing I could ever possibly think of. Uh, but seriously, I mean, notice it's a your, your people whom you brought up out of Egypt. Guess what? You're up here on the mountain. They're down there worshiping a golden calf. They've acted corruptly. They've sinned a great sin. Now notice how Moses in approaching God and talking about, please do not destroy them. Why? Because you have got a faithful covenant that's unconditional that you've made. Because the nation with which you rescued them from will also doubt your ability and attribute your act of love and redemption to hate instead. And by the way, don't forget God. They're yours. They're yours. They belong to you. They're your inheritance. And you used your power to set them free. Everybody see how he puts the claim that God has made where God's made it. Everybody see that? That's how Moses appeals to the Lord. So we'll stop there. Of course, you know how the rest of it happens. The Lord doesn't destroy them. We praise God for that. But we'll stop there so that we can pick up with chapter 10 next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer as Moses did, praying your word according to your understanding, uh, asking, Father, for your mercy and asking God for your peace uh, to be over us, Lord, as we uh, approach you in all the situations of our lives, uh, seeking for your wisdom, seeking for your grace, and that, Father, our confidence in you would be unwavering. Uh, and if it has wavered, it would be renewed because your word is sure and steadfast. That's how Moses appealed to you. He appealed to you on the basis of your word, your promises, what you've done in history. And I pray, God, that we would realize we don't serve a different God and that this time isn't so far removed from us that you've changed in some way. You're always the same. So help us, Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.